the Ten Commandments. And in case you're wondering or asking yourself, is he really just going to preach one sermon on the Ten Commandments? I think you know the answer to that. Eleven at least. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything That is your neighbors. And let us pray together. Father in heaven, as we come now with Israel to Mount Sinai and we hear the law, we don't want to be like them who say in a couple verses after verse 17, uh, Moses, just make it stop. But uh, Lord, we want to, to humbly bow in reverence and really to express the mentality just sung together in hymn 449. Not seeking justification through the law, but but finding uh, instruction for our living and and really seeking to understand the totality of our relationship to the law. And so help us along these lines through these many sermons, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well, having come to Mount Sinai, as we saw in chapter 19 and having experienced something so solemn and even terrifying there. Again, as we saw, the thunder, the lightning, uh, the quaking of the mountain, the voice of the Lord. We read uh, in verse 1 of chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. It's important to recognize that it was the Lord who spoke from Mount Sinai. It was the Lord who gave the law. It was the voice they heard and which they say in verse 19 was too much for them, asking Moses that he would speak to them instead. Verse 19 Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest they or lest we die. It was the Lord who was speaking here. Here are the Ten Commandments. What can we say about them? Well, first of all, as you see in the title, I propose first to consider them as a whole generally to offer a general introduction to the Ten Commandments as a whole before we seek to consider them one by one. Which we will. And so, as I uh, said a little earlier, 11 sermons at least. But why would we take so much time on the Ten Commandments? Uh, Surely that is a question which ought to be answered. Well, for one thing, I've already answered the question in one sense. It is surely noteworthy that here 
God was speaking directly to the people. They had a mediator. They had Moses. In fact, that's what they appealed to. Moses, would you please speak to us instead of God? And so often throughout Exodus, we find God speaking by a servant, Moses, saying, I want you to say this to them. But here it is, God himself who is speaking from the mountain, as, uh, as I said last time uh, from Matthew Henry, God was preaching this mighty sermon, Mount Sinai was his pulpit. Now that in itself tells us something unusual was occurring here, uh, occurring here, something of the deepest importance. And we even see, as I've said, how the people were conscious of this, although they weren't happy about it. The ten words here spoken form the basis of the, of the Old Covenant. They were written on tablets by the finger of God, another indication of their significance. And then they were to be placed into the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. As though to underscore, the words which God uttered here stand at the foundation of His holiness. And thus of the people's holiness. The foundation of God's holiness, but the foundation as well of the people's. This was a law for them to keep. But you also know that on top of the ark was placed the mercy seat. On top, the mercy seat on top of the ark in which the Ten Commandments resided. But do you see the mercy seat was placed upon the ark in which the law dwelt, I'm saying. It was all a picture of mercy, which was founded in justice and righteousness and holiness as a way of telling the people never to separate these things, never to seek mercy from God apart from his righteousness is found in the law. Mercy, which is founded on righteousness. Now, if you go on with your Old Testaments, you will find the prophets condemning Israel time and again, precisely for her failure with respect to these laws. You've broken my Sabbaths, they said, on behalf of God. You've had other gods. You've not dealt justly with your neighbors, commandments 5 through 9. And the point I'm making in pointing to the prophets is the manner in which they upheld the law as the basis and the foundation of the covenant. Israel, standing in covenant with God, as the prophets reminded the people, were always uh, or was always under these laws. Israel as a nation. And her failure to keep covenant with God was seen in her failure to keep the Ten Commandments. So no one can seriously read the Old Testament and come to any other conclusion, but that the Ten Commandments were absolutely central to the religion that is found there from this point forward, from Moses all the way into the coming of Christ. But then what about him? Well, as you know, in Galatians chapter 4, we read that the Lord Jesus, as an Israelite, was born under the law. And we even find indications of this in the gospel. He was circumcised on the eighth day, for instance. And so much of his ministry, he had uh, to uphold the law against the Jews and defend his disciples and himself and their Sabbath observance and so on. He was born under the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. What law? Well, this law. Jesus, being born an Israelite, was subject to this law as well, just as Moses and Israel as a nation was. To say under the law is just to point to one's place in this whole administration or this covenant. So Christ was born under the law. But one of the questions we may have, however, 
is the place of the law today, seeing that Christ fulfilled the law in a way that Israel never did. And so the question which we have and which Christians often have and which you find as many answers is what place do the Ten Commandments have today in a new covenant? Again, seeing that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly in a way Adam failed to do, in a way Israel failed to do. What is our relationship to it now that it has finally been kept? Well, listen to what God says. I'll just summarize it here. But in Jeremiah 31, and as quoted in Hebrews chapter 8, he says in essence that God will make a new covenant, unlike the covenant which he made with the fathers when he led them out of Egypt, and which they broke. And he will take the law and he will write it on their hearts. He also says, so uh, the law will be an inward principle. And then he says, secondly, that he will remember their sins no more. He will forgive sins. The first great blessing is he will write the law on their hearts. In contrast, again, to the old covenant written on tablets of stone, which the fathers did not keep. Now, do you notice that God says in that concerning the law in a new covenant These very laws which I wrote on tablets of stone and gave to the people through Moses and placed in the Ark of of the Covenant. I will now write on your very hearts. What law? The very same law. And so the difference in these two administrations or two covenants is seen very obviously, not in the contents of the law, but in the manner in which it is written, in the mechanism of its delivery. Or the manner in which God imparts the law. In one, one covenant on tablets of stone. The letter kills, Paul says. But in the other, on our very hearts. But the Spirit gives life. That is the fundamental point of contrast which Jeremiah and which the writer of the Hebrews underscores with respect to the law in the two covenants. Not in the law once more, but in the delivery. And we all know the difference this makes, we who are Christian people, to have the law not merely as an external code to threaten and to terrify and to condemn, but now as an inward principle, as a manifestation of the new life in Christ which we have and which is being worked out in our lives by the Holy Spirit who is conforming us to this pattern that he is imprinting on our souls to have the law written on our hearts. What a difference that makes. And we can agree with Jeremiah, this is indeed One of the great blessings of the new covenant. And yet we cannot help but notice that this is not the prevailing attitude among Christians today. Far from it. What is common, rather, is an indifference to law. And even antipathy. A hatred for the law. Christians today seem to think that to be under a new covenant is now to have nothing to do with the law of God, as uttered here on this mountain, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. That the essence, they say, of a new covenant is the absence of law. In its place, they claim the supremacy of love. Love is seen not as that which fulfills the law, so as to bring out its true impulse with regard to our neighbor and God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Fulfills the law, he says, because if you love your neighbor, then you will keep the law. You'll do what's best for him. You'll worship God and so forth. Love not as seen, I say, as that which causes us to keep the law in its true sense, but uh, as it is suggested, that which replaces the law and renders it obsolete. But is that really how love functions? Does Paul really say 
in the New Testament, no law for the Christian? Do you ever find that in the Bible? No, what he actually says is that the man who has love for his brother is the one who really keeps the law. I just said that. Love is the principle, not which renders the law null and void. It is the principle, in fact, which brings the law to its truest and fullest expression. So much so that Jesus and Paul and all the writers of the New Testament say, you can never hope to keep the law unless you have love. But if you have love, then you will keep the law. There never was any way to keep the law except by love. Which is why Jesus says in his summation of the, of the, uh, of the law, the great commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. There are the Ten Commandments in summary form. Love for God, love for neighbor. And if you love God, you'll keep the first four commandments. If you love your neighbor, you'll keep the second six. Here is the man who keeps the law, who really understands what Jesus is saying. How odd then that anyone should claim that he who has love has no law. That's not only to misunderstand law, but it's to misunderstand love. Well, let me say another thing. We should also notice the antiquity of this law. Sometimes it is suggested that the law began with Moses, but nothing could be further from the truth. The law did not originate with Moses. We already saw them keeping the Sabbath before they ever got to Sinai. And so much for that point. So much for the suggestion that the law originated at Mount Sinai. But let me go even further back in history than that. These very same laws you can find in the garden. You can find them in the time of the flood in the life of Moses. And you can find them in the days of Abraham. The law is as ancient as the world. And the point is not difficult to see or accept once you actually study and consider the contents of the Ten Commandments. Can you imagine that God was all right with idolatry before Moses? Can you imagine that murder was something he accepted or or tolerated? You see, just to consider these particular laws is to realize they are always valid and they always have been. When did God ever allow theft or adultery? These things were always sin and they always will be. And part of the glory of of the new heavens and the new earth, let me just say, is not that there will be no law, but that there will be no sin. In other words, finally, at last, we will discover the true righteousness that the law envisioned and the absence of sin and thus the absence of the prohibition. And yet it would seem out of a desire to make this point, speaking of the law as originating with Moses There really is only ever one commandment in question. Nobody would really suggest that it's all right to murder or that it's all right to blaspheme. What about the fourth commandment? Well, there will be a sermon on the fourth commandment, but let me say two things in favor of the fourth commandment along these lines. The antiquity. This is the one people always want to debate. They always want to locate it as a feature only of the old covenant as originating with Moses as ending with Christ. To suggest that it was something peculiar to Israel, but which has nothing to say to us today. You won't find the Sabbath in the new covenant. Well, but my first answer, I said I have two. My first answer is to notice where it belongs. It's the fourth commandment. It is not a commandment given in isolation. It belongs to this list. And you won't be able to make any of these other laws temporary in nature. 
You won't be able to make a single one of them, uh, aside from the fourth, as some tried to do, belong only to Israel. And so just realizing where it belongs and how it comes to Israel here, why would we treat the fourth commandment any differently? Why do people suggest, for instance, uh, and there are men that I admire who say this in the Reformed in the Reformed camp, who reject the Sabbath as a Christian ordinance, that the fourth commandment was ceremonial. How could that be? It is one of the Ten Commandments. It is obviously moral. That isn't to say, I, again, I have a whole sermon coming on this. There were ceremonial aspects to the law. There were components which were peculiar to Israel. But the law was greater than Israel in all of its commands. But the second answer I would give is that of all commandments... The fourth commandment actually, more than any other, underscores the timelessness of the law. Because the foundation of this law is the eternity of God's existence now that he has made the world. The basis of his giving this law is that he now enjoys and rests in his Sabbath now that he has made the world. And so the Sabbath he institutes as a way to make us long for heaven where we will with him enjoy the eternal Sabbath, the right of the Hebrews says the Sabbath rest still remains for the people of God. We've not yet entered into it. That Sabbath rest which God now eternally enjoys. And so long as it remains for us to enter, so uh, the law which points to it remains as well. Strange indeed is the logic then which, which suggests the Sabbath has no relevance today. When God is still enjoying his Sabbath rest. And the Sabbath rest is what we too hope to enjoy. And so there's really nothing to be said, not with any of the commandments, for the view that the Ten Commandments are out of date. An ancient relic of Israel that has no place in the church today. But let us consider next the value of this law and its character. Ask yourself and try to notice in the form the commandment comes to us. What is a law? Well, a law is a prescribed code of conduct. But in the context of a covenant relationship with God, it is a prescribed code of conduct given by God himself. Which is evident from the whole way this comes to the people. It is God who is speaking. It is God who prepared the people for three days to get ready to receive this law, to sanctify themselves, to consecrate their hearts and their bodies. Not even to touch their wives, he says. Get ready for what God is about to say. And then what does God say to them? Well, before he gives the law, he says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He states who he is in his relationship to the people. He reminds them of the covenant context of the giving of the law. And when God then gives the law, he has a very specific purpose in doing so, namely to reflect his own purposes for his own people, as stated in chapter 19, verse six. That is to say, in the prior chapter, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He gave the law that is to realize that purpose, that they might be holy as he is holy and reflect his own holiness to the world world. How? By keeping the law. By constantly uh, indicating to God and to the world and even to themselves that he is indeed the Lord, our God, whom we will serve. And so this tells us how the law is meant to function, the Lord in giving it. As a way, I just said, of the people reflecting the Lord's holiness to the world. The law is itself a reflection 
you know, of God's own holiness. At least I hope you know that. It reflects his character and his being. Errol Hull says uh, in his book on sanctification, and he has a chapter on the Ten Commandments, it is evident that by its very nature, the Decalogue, or the Ten Commandments, is a reflection of the nature of God because it tells us of his love for righteousness and his hatred of iniquity. The Ten Commandments define exactly what sin is. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know, it's funny. I just remembered my little four-year-old daughter asked me today, Daddy, what is sin? Well, sin is breaking the law of God. That's what it is. Or, as I once heard it put by a fellow minister, the Ten Commandments reflect God's own priorities. If you were to ask God, what are the ten most important things to you? He would say, well, here are the ten most important things. These are the things, in other words, which he values. And so they ought to be the things which we value and which we reflect, we understand, is important in our relationship to God by keeping the law. Now, again, if you look at the preface or verse one, this is perfectly clear. God is saying, look at who I am. Look at what I have done. Given all that I am, and especially what I've done for your sakes, you ought to do these things. You ought to live in such a way as to acknowledge my lordship and my salvation. I did not bring you out of Egypt, out of a place of bondage, to live as you please. I brought you out so that that you might serve me in holiness. And that holiness is found and reflected only in the law. But then if we were to look at the particular commandments themselves, we would see this as well. How it is they reflect God's own holy character, his values, his commitments, his nature, the things that he loves and the things that he hates. And certainly once we see that, we ought to value them for that reason. Commandments one through four reveal God's holy zeal for himself, a zeal that he wants to find in his people. People who love the Lord, their God, with all their soul, with all their strength, all their mind and all their heart. And so he speaks in the first, the lawful reverence for his being shall have no other gods before me. He alone is God. There is no other. Surely we ought to know that. Number two, a lawful reverence for his nature. You ought not to seek to represent him in visible form. Uh, This is something that Israel was meant to learn specifically at Sinai. You did not see me in a way that you might represent. And yet what do we find them doing? They make the golden calf. They wanted to lay eyes on something, but God is not a person you can lay eyes on. He is a spiritual being. He cannot be represented without distorting his essence. Number three, a lawful reverence for his name. Do you remember how the Lord's prayer begins? Hallowed be thy name. We ought not to take the Lord's name in vain. We ought to hallow it. We ought to value it as something which is very precious. Because we love the Lord. Number four. A lawful reverence for God's special day. Remember the Sabbath day. The day which God in his eternity is still observing in heaven. Commandments 5 through 9 then reveal God's perfect justice with men. And then we'll see in a moment. Number 10 belongs in a class all its own. Number 5, a lawful reverence for God's authority in society. God is the one who has structured society. He is the one who created the world. 
Which is why a rejection of lawful authority is always a rejection of God himself. It's why we as Christians must reject, as is so prevalent today, a spirit of egalitarianism. It's a rejection of the fifth commandment. Well, I'll save that for that sermon. But number six, a lawful reverence for life shall not murder. Why? Because God created all life. And his image is specifically reflected in man. God isn't saying you can't kill an animal or a pug. He's saying you shouldn't murder your fellow man. As he said, after the flood. Number seven, a lawful reverence for marriage. Why? Obviously, because God in the garden instituted marriage and marriage is something that we as his people ought to honor. Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. Marriage is to be honored by all. For God will judge the fornicator. Let our holiness be seen in this, beloved, that we as Christian people honor marriage. Number eight, a lawful reverence for personal property. Well, there's another thing that's hateful to today's ears, isn't it? And yet it's something which God values and we ought to value as well. Number nine, a lawful reverence for truth. Since God himself is truth and in him there is no lie. A lying tongue, tongue, beloved, is a denial of the creator and of his perfect government. Cease lying, Paul says. Speak the truth. That is the Christian way. Commandment number 10, as I say, belongs in a class all its own, revealing the inner unity of the law as Jesus later expounds in the Sermon on the Mount. You shall not covet. In other words, to even desire to sin is to sin. Sin is not located merely in the outward action, but in the inward feeling and the desires. To even desire something unlawful is to break the law. And so as Jesus will later expound and Paul along with him, The law is spiritual. It is inward. It always was. One of the Jews' cardinal errors was that she never saw this, or they never saw this. But let me say something further about the unity of God's law, the Ten Commandments taken as a whole. As James later tells us, and I think Paul has a similar statement, though I can't remember uh, exactly, but... James uh, says that to be guilty of one is to be guilty of them all. He who transgresses the law in a single point is guilty of transgressing the whole law. Why? Because the law comes to us as one, as a unity. And it is a mistake for us to separate them out too much as ten commandments, ten separate commandments, rather than seeing the law as one, rather than considering the law as a whole. You can't atomize the law too much. In fact, that's what the Pharisees did. You can't prioritize this or that commandment, but forsake the others. Again, you have to take it all as a whole. You're either committed to keeping the whole thing, or else you fall into the the category of a transgressor or a lawbreaker. In essence, uh, you either love God or you don't. And there really is no in-between. It's an either-or proposition. That's how the law comes to us. And the same is true with your brother. You either love him or you don't. And so that's what we're seeking to do here at the outset. We're trying to take it all in at once as a whole, as a unity, before we consider the details and the peculiar commands. One of the things I think that illustrates this point later on, when Israel was guilty of breaking the second commandment, her her, her sin of idolatry and the golden calf, in response to Israel breaking that single command, do you remember what Moses does? Throws down the tablets and they, they're broken in pieces at his feet. I think that's a metaphor for what I'm describing here. The, the man who breaks the law in a single point throws the entire Decalogue on the ground and it shatters in pieces at his feet. 
But now I think one of the more interesting questions to ask in a more general way is what was their purpose with respect to Israel? Why then the law? As Paul asked in Galatians 3, especially considering what we've already seen about Abraham in uh, the book of Genesis. We understand God's purpose. We understand how it is meant to proceed. The promise of a Messiah and a Savior. That's the promise. Who would come from the seed of the woman. And as redemptive history is proceeding along, that's what Israel was to look for. The people of God were to look for. That was the promise. It always depended upon faith. And that was something which God especially clarified to Abraham. Abraham believed God and he was, it, was, it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith. Why then the law? Why so many years later did God give the law at Mount Sinai? What was he seeking to do? And why specifically to Israel here was the law to be the very basis of the old covenant? You see, as soon as you say to break one is to break all, which I just said from James is immediately to realize they were bound to fail. And such was the purpose of this arrangement. They were bound to fail. That was exactly the point. Let me explain what I mean. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7 reflects upon the purpose of the law. He says, in essence, I know it is good. Inwardly, I agree with it. Yet I find, confronted with the law, The only thing I'm really able to do is to break it. It is a strange experience, but it is a common one. I am certain it is your experience. The more I try to keep it, I want to keep it. I agree with it. In fact, there's nothing I want to do more than to keep the law, and yet I find I cannot. I find an opposite principle in me, and that principle, he says, is sin. And so Paul says, rather than finding life in the law, all he found was death. Romans chapter 7, verse 10, and the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy and the commandment is holy, just and good. Uh, But then, as he goes on to say in verses 13 and following, the trouble is me. The trouble is my sin. And Paul is not alone in this. As I said, we join him in this experience. But think especially of Israel. Israel, as we will discover and as we know, really only ever broke the law. She never kept it. And of course, God knew this would be the case. And so why did he ever give it? Why did he make it so central in the making of this covenant, what we call the old covenant? It's absolutely the central feature of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. To answer this, now we must turn to Galatians 3, or at least uh, listen to what I have to say from that chapter. There Paul asked the question, knowing full well that the promise given to Abraham would only ever be inherited by faith. Why then did God give the law through Moses so many years later? What was he seeking to accomplish? Was it to annul the promise? Was he setting aside the covenant he had made with Abraham? Certainly not, he says. God wasn't setting aside the promise, nor could he. It was impossible for God to lie, to promise something and then not to do it. He wasn't setting aside the promise, nor was he setting aside the means by which the promise would be realized. He didn't say by faith to Abraham and then by works to Moses. He wasn't suggesting the law would become the vehicle by which the promise would be fulfilled. No, he had another purpose altogether in the old covenant where he made the law so prominent and so fearful. 
He gave the law in order to teach Israel a painful lesson and one that we are meant to learn as we read her history. In essence, that she might have the very experience Paul has and recounts in Romans chapter 7. That the more she sought to keep the law, the more she found she only broke it. The more she sought life by the law, the more she found it only worked death in her. Which is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. He asks in verse 19 again, what purpose does the law serve? Why then the law? It was given not to give life, but because of transgressions till the promised seed should come. Which he says in verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law which a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. I didn't finish reading verse 19. Let me do that. It was added. Why the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Because of transgressions. Of course, the whole point was for Israel to see that this was plainly impossible, to to find life in the law. That the more she sought righteousness and life by the law, the more she found that she could not find it. That rather she was only becoming worse and more sinful, or at least more conscious of her sinfulness. It was like she, uh, she was, Paul says, kept in a prison, confined there until Christ should come, verses 22 and 23. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Or as Paul says in another place, the law entered that the offense might abound. Romans chapter five, verse 20. That's why God gave the law. To increase the transgression. It was added because of transgressions. Not because of righteousness. Again. If the law could give righteous. uh, How does he put it? If there had been a law given. Which could have given life. Truly righteousness would have been by the law. But it couldn't be so. Not now that sin has entered into the picture. Israel. Beginning at Sinai, was brought out of bondage into another kind of bondage, you might say. She was kept in this prison house under guard, guardianship of the law. But only so that she might learn by this tutor or guardian of her need of a redeemer, of her desperate need, just like you and me, of the gospel. That faith by faith, we would see the realization of the promise and the redeemer, not in our own keeping of the law. And because of this, the worst thing Israel could have ever done or ever concluded about the law was that she could be saved by it. No, wherever the law and the commandment is prominent, as it was at Sinai under the old covenant, the offense, the sin abounds, not righteousness. Yes, but if she had only learned this, she would have seen, as Paul says in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. It was a painful lesson. But it was a necessary one. And the tragedy of Israel is she never learned it. Verse 22 as well. The scripture is confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. Might be given to those who believe. That's the lesson. That's the purpose. This was something that Israel... Ought to have learned, as I said, but this is something which man still has to learn for himself. 
whoever has thus been dealt with by God's law, and learn not that he is righteous, but rather sinful beyond measure. He is the one who is ready to accept the gospel as stated here. That in Christ the promised seed there is righteousness and life and justification by faith and not by works of the law. Again, God can find Israel under the law as it thundered forth ever from this mountain in order to teach her this and we by her. That is why God gave the law. That is why he made it such a prominent feature of the old covenant. Even after he made the promise, the gracious promise to Abraham. Not in order to annul the promise or to set it aside, but in order to make it clear in unmistakable terms how it was the promise was to come into effect. Not by the law, but by faith. And we're all such legalists at heart that if God had never done this, if he had never taught us this lesson through Israel, we would have never learned it. We would still be saying and thinking that the promise comes into effect by the law. Well, look at Israel and you tell me whether it is so. But that's not to say that the law is thus to be set aside for the believer now that Christ has come. We aren't kept anymore in the prison house of the law. But God is not finished with the law. Neither are we. Yet far too many make this false inference based on uh, the prior point. There is, as you may know. More than one use of the law. In fact, there are three. I'll reference two of them. The first use of the law is this. It's what I've been saying. The law is meant to condemn. It's meant to drive us to Christ. It's meant to teach us of our need. It is meant to cause the transgression to abound. So that grace might abound all the more. And wherever it is made prominent as at Sinai, it always has this effect. The first use of the law. But it also is another use. It is a second use. I I won't uh, speak of that this evening. But it is another use which is precious to the Christian. And what is called the third use of the law. Namely, to instruct. In other words, supposing we have found righteousness and life and justification. Not by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Which is the true and only way of salvation. Supposing that we have learned the law's awful lesson. But now we've been set free by Jesus Christ and now are indeed the sons of God. Still, we might ask, why then the law or what then of the law? Do we set it aside? Is the law then against the promises of God? Verse 21, certainly not. Certainly not. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 3, also in verse 21. Having asserted as strongly as he can that no man was ever justified by keeping the law. Verse 31, excuse me. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. Certainly not. We are not those as Christians who have nothing to do with the law. We do not draw the false inference that the law has no place in the Christian life. Any denigrating statements we might have about the law or that we might find in the New Testament have less to do with the law, as Paul suggests in Romans chapter 7, and more to do with our inability to keep it. In other words, the problem is not the law, but myself. It is my sin. And the problem is equally found as sinners in the false gospel that suggests that we are justified by keeping the law. Well, that ought to be denigrated. But even then, it isn't the law that is the problem. It is me as a sinner. But we know, as he says in Romans chapter 7, 
that the law is holy and good. And that is always true. Because the law will always reflect the righteous character of God. And so we with Paul delight in it and we want to keep it. And having been set free from the condemning power of the law. I as a Christian come back to the law. And I have a new experience. I begin to see it in a new light. The law itself takes on a new aspect. It no longer condemns. It no longer threatens. It doesn't even have the same old power to produce transgression in me. Now I find, if I have the Holy Spirit, that I am able to keep the law. That is the effect of grace, beloved. And it is that effect which Paul goes on uh, to describe in Romans chapter 8, having described the experience which I've been describing as a negative one in chapter 7, he says in chapter 8 of the book of Romans, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now that I have the spirit of God and now that Christ has put an end to sin and the condemning power of the law, there's no condemnation, he says in verse one, but only righteousness and life to the believer. I find that I am able to keep the laws. I walk not by the flesh, but by the spirit. You see, he's saying what I could not do and even what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, he can and he has. By giving me his spirit, now I find that I am a law keeper, even me. Not a perfect one, but far better than I ever was or could be before I had the spirit dwelling in me. And now I find that I am growing and getting better all the time. The spirit is so wonderfully at work that he cannot stop at setting me free from the condemning power of the law. He must also now conform me to that very pattern. He must impress the law itself upon my heart and my very being and cause my life to reflect its holiness. He must make of the church a kingdom of priests and holy nations. That is exactly what he is doing today. For God is most glorified when his people take on this aspect and pattern of holiness themselves as found in the Ten Commandments. And the work of the spirit is not complete in me until he has done so fully, until he has so perfectly conformed me to the image of Christ that we are made perfect. But until he has. I still need the law. I still stand in need of the instruction which the law gives. Not as a way by which to obtain life, but rather as having obtained it by faith. As those who wish to know how to live. Tell me, O Lord, how it is you would have me live. And who equally, because of indwelling sin, still need to be reminded and chided and rebuked from time to time. If not daily by the very law of God. Tell me what it is, O God, I ought not to do. Here, beloved, are the things that God hates. Let us have nothing to do with them. Equally, here are the things He loves. Let us seek them diligently by the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling in each of us. For you, if you live, Romans chapter eight, verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for as many as are led by the spirit of God. These are the sons of God. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number four thirty nine.